Hello and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is episode number 10. Today we're going to go back to speak with Dr. Danny Benjamin, a professor of pediatrics at Duke University, who was on the show a few months ago discussing SARS-2 and COVID-19, specifically in children, as it relates to how are they going to effectively attend school with the least amount of transmission and risk possible. His group has been studying over 100 schools in North Carolina, looking at ways to mitigate risk of uh, disease transfer. We also are going to spend some time talking about the new indication of the Pfizer vaccine for young children between the ages of 5 and 12 years old. This is a new emergency use indication based on a a recent study that was published, and we're going to get a little bit into the details of, of who should be vaccinated and what do we know based on the science. For those listeners who have not listened to the original podcast with Dr. Benjamin, he is the Kaiser Arena Distinguished Professor of Pediatrics at Duke University School of Medicine. He received his fellowship in pediatric infectious diseases at Duke University after completing his residency at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. He also happens to have a master's in public health at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Dr. Benjamin is a thoughtful scientist who spends the bulk of his time studying the effects of certain pharmaceuticals in at-risk children, especially premature infants. But in this case, his thoughtfulness is primarily being looked at from the perspective of how do we keep kids in school safely, what does his research show, and also what do we really know about what's happening in the world of vaccines in this younger age group now. So with no further time spent discussing it, we're going to get right into what Dr. Benjamin has to say in this short but very important interview. Good morning, Danny Benjamin. Welcome back to the show. Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. So happy to have you back. You are still the number one listened to podcast so far in the uh, short uh, career that we've had going on here. So let's get it. Let's get it started. I know you got a hard stop in about 25 minutes. So how are you? Great. I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me back, Chris. I'm happy to be here. All right. So I wanted to get you back on quickly so we could talk a little bit about the new uh, changes that are occurring. One, focus on the 5 to 11-year-old age group and the COVID vaccine. Two, let's talk about what's going on in the world and schools particularly and uh, just any other insights you might have for parents and and families regarding COVID. Sure. So for... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, bud. I was going to say, for me, you know, I think we've switched into the endemic nature now. It's still, quote unquote, considered a pandemic. But to me, it's starting to feel more endemic. Um, I, I wanted to go start right there with what your thoughts are on. Are we still pandemic based? Are we endemic based in the U.S. particularly? In the U.S., we're still clearly the regions of the country that are still pandemic. Right. Colorado is on urgency of care. And other states have um, overloaded ERs and um, overcrowded ICUs and lots of young people dying, unfortunately. There are also a subset of states where there's large amounts of infection, but because they're highly vaccinated, we have not yet seen hospitalizations and deaths go up. But as you know, hospitalizations and deaths follow rises in infection. So for some parts of the country, I think we'll have greater clarity as to whether those parts of the country are endemic versus pandemic yet. 
in the southeast, it's starting to feel a little more endemic. But of course, um, we've had that feeling before, specifically <laughs> the spring. So yeah. I am cautiously optimistic for parts of the country. Those two of the three parts of the country, I would say part one would be the highly vaccinated states. And part two would be the states that, particularly in the South, that just got uh, blistered by COVID this summer and uh, September. Yeah. Yeah. So let's pivot then. So what do you think about the new norm in schools? We're at our office now at a 3%. Uh, COVID positivity rate. I know in our area now we're seeing a lot less, but this could change dramatically in the winter. So what, what's the new latest and greatest on your research and what you understand regarding schools and the like? Sure. So as you know, we have a group of about 100 school districts now from around the United States, and we're trying to expand to other countries as well. But right now we have about 100 school districts submitting data to us in real time about COVID and Delta, and about half a dozen to a dozen of those districts have had either a few weeks or five or six weeks unmasked. And masking definitely has a lower rate of COVID transmission within school. We now have the individual patient level or individual participant level data with a control group and a masked group, and a mask versus unmasked or mandatory masking versus voluntary masking. And those data are consistent with what we and others have previously said, that masking works uh, full stop. Okay. Those data, Chris, will not get published, I don't think, until the first quarter of 2022, essentially because they are confirmatory of what we've previously written. We just need to get it out there for future variants and future pandemics. And that's the primary reason why we would do that and put that into the public domain, which which we will and we are dedicated to doing in an appropriate fashion. The other real piece of good news is that the five to 11 year old vaccine has been approved. So how do I put how do I link those two statements together? Well, if I'm in a school district right now, that's masking and hopefully I am. But that's not true for large parts of the country. If I'm in a school district that's masking right now. Really, what I most want to do is make sure that masking stays in place until January. And January is an important marker because January allows for families to get the 5 to 11-year-olds one dose of vaccine in November, one dose of vaccine in December, and then be fully protected by the time kids come back from Christmas break. The folks who unmask between now and January are in this unusual ethical position where they've said, okay, education's compulsory. The best way to educate children is face-to-face. I've got a group of people, about half the people that I educate, those uh, under age 12, cannot yet be vaccinated. Families cannot unilaterally protect them yet. They are in the midst of doing that, but they can't do it yet. And I've got children, for example, a child with Down syndrome, right, who's, say, six or seven years old. And that seven-year-old is coming to school, maybe that child, in addition to developmental delay, which puts them at higher risk for morbidity and mortality from COVID, and perhaps obesity, 
uh, which puts them at higher risk of morbidity and mortality from COVID and perhaps heart disease, again, higher risk of morbidity and mortality from COVID. And I am preventing those families from protecting that child by my policy as it relates to masking. Come January, that child becomes protected if the family so chooses via vaccination. And so I think in January, reasonable people will come up with different policy solutions based on what's happening in their local communities and their local communities risk tolerance for COVID-19. So what might be acceptable in rural, rural Colorado might not be acceptable in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And it might be very, very acceptable in say Yadkin County, North Carolina, but is not so acceptable in New York City. Those are four communities with very different levels of risk tolerance as it relates to how much COVID transmission they might allow in or find acceptable in their schools. And so what we are encouraging schools to do is to have clarity around their own level of risk tolerance and their community's level of risk tolerance, wait until January, and then make some decisions as a community about what to do about masking at that time. Yeah, I like that. I like that looking at this. Uh, you know, I've always said that the Constitution and the way this country is set up as incubators of understanding, you know, with states making these decisions, local communities making these decisions. I like the way you put that. And clearly, you know, getting the level of children who are high risk first, definitely right away, and then getting as many as we can vaccinated makes a big difference. The masking part, I think, makes complete sense until we have better knowledge of where the rest of this pandemic or in, when it becomes endemic goes. So I have a last question for you um, that I think is sort of interesting. And you, whether, you're not, whether or not you want to answer this, I'll leave that up to you. But why do you think we're not looking at some of the data that Europe and Canada now has with the second dose being pushed off 12 to 16 weeks with better immunity um, so far? Is it, Do you think that's because it's better to get people vaccinated you know, two doses within that three-week time frame, because to me, it would make more sense now, especially in this younger age group, to maybe push that second dose out farther to maybe have better immunity based on these these couple studies that have come out. Right. So what the, the conflict, Chris, that you're talking about is kind of 2021 science, yeah, 2021 pandemic, butting heads with 120 years of regulatory background. So let's walk people through the little bit of the science, a little bit of the epi, and then a little bit of the regulatory context. So the science that was done is it's clear that the vaccines are extraordinarily safe and effective if given three weeks apart for Pfizer, for example, or the Moderna by its pathway. Let's take a look at Pfizer specifically because that's authorized in the United States and it has the most pediatric data. Yeah. So when Pfizer goes through the randomized trials, there's this urgent need to get people protected in the randomized trials as fast as possible so that we get the answer as fast as possible. So that is what's subjected to randomization, which is the gold standard. Right. There have not been the comparator trials, nor is it really been feasible to date to do the robust 50,000 comparator trial of three-week spacing versus 12-week spacing, which would be the ideal, of course. 
but we don't have those data. What we have is some post hoc data outside of randomization and FDA Part 11 compliant trials. And we have these pivotal data where it was really done at three weeks. Okay. So it is reassuring to note that the risk, even among adolescent boys, for myocarditis is very, 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 very low. And in fact, if you were to only base the decision to vaccinate your son on the question of myocarditis, and there were no other adverse events from COVID, you would still vaccinate your child on a risk-benefit ratio because the risk of myocarditis from COVID is 70, 70, 70-fold higher from the virus than it is even adolescent boys from the vaccine. Okay, right. so we have this super safe, super immunogenic, super effective, and we know that it works for three weeks. But we've got this, hey, couldn't we maybe push it out to 12 weeks? Well, the problem with simply pushing it out to 12 weeks or even designing the PEDS trials to have pushed it out to 12 weeks relates to the regulatory history. The regulatory history FDA is required by law to require drug companies to do randomized trials to get their product onto the market. And by legislative requirement, they're required to do some things around PEDS specifically so that the PEDS really matches your development program in the adults. So to do all of a sudden be have this all of these tens of thousands of randomized patients and adults and experience across now several hundred million adults receiving the dose every three weeks. And then all of a sudden at the last minute, go to two to 3000 children to maybe extend it out to 12 weeks is a really, really challenging thing for anybody to really push for. All right. So that's why we as physicians have this, hey, it's going to be three weeks apart, vaccinate the kids, give it three weeks apart. Now, as a parent, all right, if I wanted to space that out, would I do so? And that's something that I can just say from my own experience, I knew I had hundreds of tens of thousands of people go through randomization. I knew I had hundreds of millions of people having received the dose that way. I don't want to be doing something off the rails from that. I have four sons. They're all in the highest risk stratum that you can have for myocarditis. Uh, two of them are in dorms. One of them's in a military barracks. Uh, I was just like, boys, get the vaccine, get it as prescribed. It was super simple for me. But you are seeing some parents uh, space out that vaccine a little bit for those reasons. And to my mind, if I'm a general pediatrician, I want to advocate for the way it's been studied, advocate for the way it's been described. And then there's some parents that may still be super, super uncomfortable with that. That's where I can kind of work with them a little bit to maybe navigate because it's much more important. The good here is going to be much more better than the dichotomous perfect versus zero. The good of like, okay, let's get a dose in now and wait a while. If I've got to do that occasionally with patients, um, I'm, I'm okay with that. Annie, that's the perfect answer that I wanted to hear. Number one, 
it nuances reality that some parents are going to look at this very differently. Two, it goes to the reasons why we're doing what we're doing, which again, very educated people look at this and wonder why we're not doing the 12 to 16 weeks. And it's very clear, as you state, there's a reason behind the why that now makes sense that if people hear this, again, it brings trust to the system that's so lacking from the, from the central level. So again, I appreciate that part because now people can hear the why. Why aren't we doing X? Well, this is why we're not doing X. It's not, it may not be perfect, but it makes sense within the framework of how our system is set up to make this follow pediatric following adults who are the first players in the game. So thank you for that. Thank you for providing the research, the background and all of this stuff. And I know your hard stop comes up in a minute. So I'm going to let you go at this point. But Danny, as always, my friend, absolute pleasure. If you have any last words, go with them right now. Otherwise, you're the best man. Absolutely. So Chris, for your parents out there, now is the time to get the vaccine done. We've already had a million children who are five to 11 received the vaccine. We've had several million children, 12 to 17 year old received the vaccine. And we've had a couple hundred million adults receive the vaccine. So for the parents who are willing to get your children vaccinated in November or December, please do so. For parents who are vaccine hesitant, please remember that in the history of vaccinology, Surprise adverse events that emerge beyond six weeks after administration of the dose have not occurred in the history of vaccinology. So once the children who received the dose last week have had six weeks of experience under their belt and we're still not hearing of surprise events in five to 11 year olds, please go ahead and get your children vaccinated. And the reason for that is this, Chris, the Delta variant has an R naught of seven which means it's much more infectious than RSV. And remember that with RSV, a respiratory syncytial virus, the entire birth cohort is infected 24 months after birth. What that means for us for COVID is sometime between May of 2022 and May of 23, the entire pediatric population in the United States is either gonna be vaccinated, infected, or both. And the question for parents is when, you, when your child is infected, do you want the protection of the vaccine? And the vaccine protects your child for every single adverse event from COVID that we know of. And it provides it at a level of 90% or greater. So go ahead and get the vaccine done. Thanks. Perfect, buddy. Appreciate you very much. Have a great day as always. Thanks, man. Bye. So there you have some more data to add to your war chest of information that you draw upon daily when making decisions regarding COVID-19 in your kids. It is always a tricky situation to mull new data, new decisions, new vaccines, mask mandates, all the other things that we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. And so for me, it's always better to load the boat with as much information as you can especially from trusted individuals like Dr. Benjamin, who not only being a good friend of mine from years at uh, University of Virginia during residency, but just because he's well-read, well-studied, and and always comes with your child's best interests at heart. So for me, take the data, use it as best you can, and we'll continue to study together as we read information that comes off the internet, comes from experts like Dr. Benjamin and anywhere we can find it. 
that allows us to get the best science information to help us make the best decisions for our kids. I want to shift gears a little bit now, and while we're on the subject of COVID during the time of Thanksgiving in the United States, I thought it'd be interesting to think about silver linings a little bit. The COVID-19 pandemic has provided an unfortunate amount of strife and struggle, as well as mortality for many Americans. And often that gets all of the airplay, airtime, news media time, social media time, and all of the other avenues of information uh, that directionally comes our way. And it's often too negative. And so I thought this would be a good time to be grateful for the good things that we have, uh, be thankful for the silver linings of this pandemic. So I sat down the other morning uh, with a couple friends of mine that I happened to work out with in a group called uh, F3 and just asked them their thoughts on what the silver linings. The first few of us, uh, we were all supposed to not talk directly about family because it was obvious that all of us felt that family was a critical benefit of a silver lining from the pandemic as there was a lot more time spent for everybody during the early months, if not early half year of the pandemic. But that being said, each person gave their honest opinion and I love it and I love them for that. So let's uh, let's listen to a little bit about what everybody had to say about silver linings. And at the end, sit and think with yourself and your wife or husband, what were your silver linings? What can you draw upon that's a positive, that's a happy moment um, to, to do a little more positivity to drown out some of the negativity? Good morning, and here we are at Summit Coffee House in downtown Davidson with a group of gentlemen that work out every morning. And we started this actually right around a little bit before the pandemic, and it grew into this uh, amazing set of gentlemen who sit down and talk, work out, and sort of live life together. So today we're going to discuss a couple of the beautiful silver linings that happened over the pandemic. And this is in no way, shape, or form to take anything away from the hardship that everyone has suffered. It's just a way to look at a different perspective, a little bit more positivity in all the pain. So here we have a group of gentlemen in in attendance. I'm going to let each one of them name themselves by their first name and also their F3 name because it's a bunch of guys who are part of the group called F3, Faith, Foundation, uh, Fitness, and Fellowship. So here we go. Kevin, also known as Beetlejuice. I'm Jay, uh, a.k.a. Primo. I'm Ray, a.k.a. Landline. David, a.k.a. Special Sauce. And I am your host, Copper Top. You know me. So we're going to get into each one of us is going to look at what we think our favorite silver lining was of the pandemic. And I'm going to start with, in my world, you know, being in uh, the land of medicine, we started to notice that being around kids in the office, it slowed down precipitously. And that allowed for, for me personally to spend more time with each kid in the office and really enjoy some more quality time and quality experiences that allowed for more education around what's happening during the pandemic. And then it also allowed for a lot of time to really deep do deep dives into the literature and find out what's really going on in the pandemic and share that knowledge. So for me, two silver linings were those two, the ability to be there for patients on a higher level that may not have been there with the time crunch of the way medicine has been running as a business lately. So that was mine. So I'm going to move over to Beetlejuice. 
I was just saying that um, the openness for companies to allow work from home, it, uh, it changed the changed the environment or the at least the status quo. Um, COVID did, forcing everybody to go home. And then now more companies are bringing people back in, um, but with more flexibility or at least um, they have the capability to work from home. And I think that's opened up a more, at least for me, a, a better work environment. For me, having more time at home and less travel, I was able to pick up uh, new hobbies. I started playing the guitar, you know, spent more time with my kids who were into crafting and so painted a little bit. And so it was just really nice to be able to like focus on, you know, trying new things. That was Jay Primo. This is a uh, landline. So, you know, a couple, couple things, you know, my, my son's a rising senior. So he was a junior, went through home learning, um, was successful, but the amount of time that I was able to spend with him as he's growing into a young man and, um, to, to spend that time because, you know, if, if he wasn't forced to be home, he would have been out with his friends and, and doing all these things. So just to be able to have that relationship and build that relationship with he and my wife and help him through things was just such a benefit for us as he's about to go to college this coming year. And then, you know, this, this group that, you know, we work out together, we are grounded, they ground me every day. So to be able to stay in shape through these times, have a small group that we're able to be like-minded and agree and disagree and still, you know, love each other like brothers. It's just been wonderful. Thank you. Um, this is special sauce. So mine are very similar to Jay and Ray. So I have two boys and over the last close to two years, I've been working from home. And so that's given me the ability to not only be a part of their lives um, from a sports perspective, but also from an educational standpoint. So now I've been able to work with them both. Um, one is in third grade, one is in eighth grade through their education, and then also being able to, to coach some of their sports teams and be um, accessible for their games along with getting them prepared for tests. We've also been able to travel a lot more, which is different because most people are not traveling. This has given us an opportunity, uh, opportunity to afford um, bigger trips and uh, also take on a new hobby such as scuba diving, which has just been a great family thing to be able to do. So um, just being a part of the family, which I was not able to do traveling so much back and forth. And, I, and I'll echo, coming back around Copper Top here, that one of the things we did notice as our group got together and formed into a routine morning get-together exercise workout talk is the openness of discussion and candor. We come from all different ethnic, political spectrums, and we all sit and talk with openness of the allowance of each person's point of view, which is rare nowadays. And one of the reasons I don't pay attention to the news as much anymore is because we sit in a world where people tend to slam each other for their opinions, and that's one thing this group does not allow. And I think that, and one of the silver linings for me as well has been this ability to talk through any problem. And there's been a lot of them in the pandemic and a lot of disinformation, misinformation, poor policy making. And we talk with, with candor. And I think that's another piece of, of, of information that came out of this pandemic that's a silver lining. So to each of you who are listening, I hope you had some silver linings. And if you hadn't thought about it, sit today and think about what happened in your life in the past 20 months. And try and look for more positives than the absolute negatives that are obvious. Because the positives are what's going to sustain us day to day to day as COVID remains a part of our lives forever. So 
Appreciate your time. That's the end. As always, hug those beautiful kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter podcast does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship.